Ladies, that was beautiful. Sure enjoyed that. So I'm going to do a couple of things tonight that I, I don't normally do as a preacher. The first of those is I'm going to I'm going to start out by telling you a story that has nothing to do with the message. I I actually have the privilege to teach homiletics at Heartland, uh, teaching fourth year men a, about the preaching craft, and I, I tell them often, don't do that. You know, you got to sp spend your time on what you're going to be preaching about. I just can't help myself, so don't tell them. Okay, it, I, we have. Heartland students from this church there, so don't blow my cover, okay? I'm, but I do want to tell you something. That has everything to do with the marriage retreat, uh, but it's not a lot to do with the, the message tonight. They were talking about, uh, and First Peter 3 talks about how that the husband has a responsibility to dwell with the wife according to knowledge. So he's supposed to take in information about his wife as he, he lives with her. God's given him that responsibility to know and understand his wife. And I remember I had a very illuminating moment a couple of years into our marriage. Uh, we were both on staff at uh, Southwest Baptist Church in Oklahoma City, where we were on staff at the time. And uh, we had had a, a rental house that we had gotten, our first rental house we'd been in. We had a, an apartment prior to that, and we had this house that we were all excited about having. And it had a very nice manicure front lawn with... Uh, a sprinkler system and all of that nice grass that the previous occupants had worked really hard at developing but we had a problem shortly after we moved in we had moles a mole in the front yard and so I, I didn't know I'd never been a homeowner I'd never had a mole issue before and but I figured out that that's what it was when I started seeing all of the these tunnels being developed in our front yard in like this elaborate tunnel system uh, developing in our front yard so we, we tried everything to get rid of the, the mole because, again, the grass was so nice, but now we've got these mounds, and it's digging up stuff and causing problems. So we tried the little trap thing, and I think it pretty much laughed at us about that because it, 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 the trap was kept getting reset, but there was no mole there. We tried the poison thing. The, the uh, tunnel system just got more elaborate after that. So on a Wednesday afternoon while I was at the church office, I had somebody tell me, oh yeah, you know, have you ever heard this old remedy of if you're working with a flat surface, like what our front yard was, you can go and stick a water hose down into the mole hole and the water will permeate all the different holes and tunnels and then the mole will come out and you kill the mole. And I thought, wow, that's ingenious. It makes good physics sense and all of that. So again, it's a Wednesday. I've been in a suit all day on the church staff. I come home. My wife is dressed up for church. And we get this idea that right here on the spot, we're going to take care of this mole once and for good. So we get the water hose. We stick it out there in the mole hole. And we turn the water on it. And it just keeps going. And it keeps going. Because it was quite an elaborate system that it had going. And we went in the, inside the house, we did some other things, we came back out, water's still going, no sign of the mole or anything like that. Well, eventually it starts spilling out of all the different locations where the end of the mole hole was. And so I'm thinking, ah, oh, bummer, it, it didn't work. But we go over to this one part of the side yard, and we had these pavers that were over on the side yard, and the mole hole went right under the paver. So it just occurred to me, well, I should lift up this paver and see what's underneath there. So I lift it up, and sure enough, I see all this water going underneath there and nothing at first. And then all of a sudden, I see this little ugly multi-pronged snout go like this for just a second. And then the mole launches out of the hole and starts scurrying around on the ground out there, okay? So now, bright as we were as a young homeowner couple, we had thought through, this is how we're going to get the mole out. We had not thought about what we were going to do with the mole once the mole came out. 
So I'm standing there with a water hose in my suit, my wife in her Wednesday dress, and I'm standing in the yard, out in the front yard, where everybody can see a squirt in this mole chasing it around like this and going, babe, babe, get the shovel, get the shovel. And so my dear, sweet, wonderful wife in her dress clothes runs to the garage, comes around the corner. My expectation was that she was going to come around the corner and in a delicate, semi-scared-of-the-mole fashion say, here, babe, here's the shovel. No, my wife runs right past me with the shovel in her hands like this and goes, and just proceeds to bludgeon the mole. Not once, not twice, not thrice. There was little that was recognizable of that mole by the time that my wife got done with it. But this is, okay, so I learned one lesson in that moment, okay? But about 90 seconds later, the level of her violence that she had just done caught up with her, and she suddenly felt so guilty and so sad for the mole, she started crying. (laughs) Because she had bludgeoned this poor mole. So the Lord in heaven is my witness. We dug a small grave in the front yard (laughs) for the mole and went to church that night. So... I learned a lot about my wife in just that one day. And what I will tell you, I guess just as a, as a recap to me from the marriage retreat and the time that we got to have together, is that if you're just trying to do what's right and love the Lord and love your spouse and love whatever kids that God gives you, life is going to be an adventure. And it's just, it's going to be fun. When you try to do right, when you try to serve the Lord, he's going to help you take it one step at a time. You learn your spouse, you learn the kids God gives you, and he just gives you the grace to do right by the responsibilities that he's given you. So I, I just wanted to share that with you. Again, it fit in with one of the uh, lessons that we did, and it, it just didn't happen, so I wanted to share that with all of you. I'm going to do one other thing, though, that, that uh, is kind of not my nature as a preacher. I, I'm not normally uh, a rebel when it comes to, I guess, theme days or things like that. And, and so today's Family Emphasis Day, and we got to preach about family involvement in church this morning. I just want to confess to you up front, I, I just could not get away from the fact that the Lord wants me to preach a text and a message tonight that may not entirely seem directly related to family not life. It's not a text that talks about family life, though the application and some of the things that we're going to get into along the way uh, will have everything to do with the family, and if applied, will help any family that's here in the room. But again, that, that's not what I would normally do, but I, I came to the place, even this afternoon, wrestling with the Lord about it, that I would be in trouble with the Lord if I, if I didn't preach this. So I'm confident it's family day, we're focusing on families, there must be some family that God wants to have here, what we're going to talk about from Isaiah 28, okay, if you turn there in your Bibles to Isaiah 28. And once you get there, then if you wouldn't mind to stand with me. I do want to say that it was such a joy. It's been such a joy to be here uh, with all of you and to reconnect uh, some, some friendships and relationships. And I, I truly, I, I mean this before the Lord. I'd say this if, you're, if your pastor wasn't here, but I've always respected him as a, a student coming through at Heartland, had the opportunity to visit here at the church in 2003 and in 2005. He's come down to preach for multiple uh, meetings, but I, I've not had the opportunity to spend time with him or Miss Diana like what we've been able to do over the last few days. And I know you all know this, but I just want to tell you that your pastor and pastor's wife are a delight. And I really enjoyed and appreciated the, the time with them over the last few days. And my admiration, appreciation for what the Lord has done and is doing through them is just so great. And I, I'm very thankful for that and for the way that you all have taken care of us. 
The uh, text that we're about to read at the end of Isaiah 28 <clears throat> follows a, a section that's kind of typical of Isaiah in that Isaiah is tossing out all of this woe and destruction and judgment from God, but there's also all of these soaring, beautiful promises about God sending his son, the Messiah, and all of that. And it all seems so interwoven together and doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden you come down to the end of Isaiah 28, and beginning in verse 23, Isaiah gives an Old Testament parable. So a parable, an earthly story, heavenly meaning, he gives a, a parable from here in the Old Testament that tells us something about the nature of God and all of what's been happening for it, before it in Isaiah 28. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But I want you to look down at this parable in Isaiah 28, verse 23. We're going to read from verse 23 down to the end of the text, in, in verse, or into the chapter in verse 29. Isaiah, in the midst of this prophecy to Judah, midst of woe and promise from God, he says these words. Give ye ear and hear my voice. Hearken and hear my speech. Doth the plowman plow all day to sow? Kind of a rhetorical question here, but Isaiah assumed that his audience would know the answer. I could probably pull the audience and we might be split about half and half. He's asked a yes or no question. Does the plowman plow all day to sow? Some might say yes, some might say no. Doth he open and break the clods of his ground? When he hath made plain the face thereof, doth he not cast abroad the fitches, and scatter the cumin, and cast in the principal wheat, and the appointed barley, and the rye in their place? For his God doth instruct him to discretion, and doth teach him. For the fitches are not threshed with a threshing instrument, neither is a cartwheel turned about upon the cumin, but the fitches are beaten out with a staff, and the cumin with a rod." Is this blessing your soul? I don't know. Maybe not yet, okay? Look at verse 28. Bread corn is bruised because he will not ever be threshing it, nor break it with the wheel of his cart, nor bruise it with his horsemen. This also cometh forth from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. So again, the point of Isaiah's parable here may not be immediately clear to you. I think you can catch some of the basics. He's talking about a farmer and his work and what he does as a farmer and what it, the farmer is, is trying to accomplish. So I look forward to talking to you about this parable, hopefully explaining it, and you'll come away with a clear understanding of a message God wants us to understand from this parable tonight. The title of the message is this, Farmer Knows Best. Okay? Farmer Knows Best. So let me pray with you, and then you can have a seat. Father, thank you so much just for uh, the joy that uh, Anna and I have had to, to be here uh, today in these last few days. Thank you for this church. Thank you for these good people. And uh, Lord, we just want to praise and thank you for your word and how that you speak to us and how specific and how practical that it is to us on an everyday basis and I know there's something you want to say to all of us from this text tonight, so please make it clear. Help us to be obedient and responsive to what you say to us. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Now that 2018 is in the history books and we're well into the year 2019, then a variety of publications you probably have seen have begun putting out their listings or their ratings of various events that happened 
in the previous year. In fact, each year, Time Magazine releases its annual top 10 lists for the year, the best, sometimes the worst, the most notable of a variety of different categories, okay? And without exaggeration, you could go and look at the site for yourself if you wanted to. This is, this is a list of the top 10 lists that Time has put together for the previous year. Top 10 best movies, top 10 worst movies, top 10 albums, top 10 songs, top 10 music videos, TV series, TV episodes, fiction books, nonfiction books, plays and musicals, top 10 movie performances, feuds, scandals, late night moments, comebacks, buzzwords, apologies, top 10 best dress, top 10 worst dress, viral videos, worst tweets, best tweets, memes, heartwarming stories, sports moments, biggest Apple surprises, video games, apps, coolest cars, top 10 business blunders, highest paid CEOs, commercials, parenting trends, marriage stories, medical breakthroughs, new species, overreported stories, underreported stories, best Pope stories, and best quotes. So why all of the top 10 lists? Obviously, Time Magazine is not doing it if people don't click on it and read it. They wouldn't be making the money otherwise. It's because it's in all of us to look back on the time frame behind us and to kind of synthesize, put it all together, evaluate it in our minds and try to make sense of exactly what happened in the previous time frame, time frame as we look behind us. And, and I'd suggest to you that that's not entirely a bad exercise, even in practical ways it can help us clarify and make sense of what's happened in a previous amount of time. But I would suggest to you it's also even more profitable if rather than just looking at the past in order to consider life and everyday circumstances, if we actually take the time to look back and pay close attention to what God has been doing in our lives. So not just a top 10 list of the best dressed and worst dressed, but even to look back and say, if I look back at the last year, the last couple of years, could I put into categories and evaluate and look at the circumstances of life and, and try to make sense of what God's been trying to say to me through what's been happening in life? After all, someone once said, and I think this is a, a powerful statement, coincidence is what we call it when we can't see the levers and the pulleys. You know what I mean by that? Levers and pulleys, the quote, it's the idea that you, you look at a, a stage performance and it looks like that something is a coincidence that's happened on stage, but it's just you can't see behind the scenes the levers and the pulleys that were all in place in order to make that supposed coincidence take place. So just like it, it could be beneficial for us to look back on everyday life and maybe observe some of what's happened in the past and to make sense of it, it benefits us to look back on our lives at the everyday circumstances of life and try to discern what is it exactly that, that God's been doing? I, I couldn't even help uh, but think about what Miss Diana said as she was going through her own physical difficulty to say, God, what, what exactly are you doing here? Well, that, that's a great reflexive response that should be in all of us is as we go through circumstances in life to say, God, what exactly are you doing here? And, of course, the most enjoyable kind of reflection is when we take the time to look back on good things that God's done in our lives. I mean, some of you could look back on the previous year, and I've jotted some things down. Maybe there's a, a family in the church here who waited and prayed, and last year they purchased a home. And they were able to get that home for even less than the original asking price. And they look back and see that as a blessing and an answer to prayer from God. Or a Sunday school teacher who'd been praying all year for an unsaved visitor child, and they finally saw that child accept Christ. And that was a highlight to them of their service and ministry as being a Sunday school teacher. Or an adult daughter can be thankful that she was able to be by her mom's side and to watch her recover from open heart surgery. And the mom is now doing well. 
or a teenager that landed a, a good paying job that works with their church schedule and ministry schedule and all of those worlds are, are able to go together in the way that it should be. Again, it can be really encouraging to look back at life and say, I saw God at work and what God did in my life was a blessing. It was a good thing. It was an encouraging thing. What God did showed me that I had his favor. What is less uh, enjoyable at times along the way is to look back on our lives and to realize that some of the circumstances that happened in our lives are as a result of the judgment of God. That maybe we don't want to think about that as we look back and see difficult circumstances or problems that happened along the way to look back and say, I went through that difficulty, and if I'm really honest, I know that I went through that difficulty because God was judging me or because God was chastising me. But just like it's worth our while to consider the past in all of these other ways, we don't want to avoid what it is that God is doing or what it is that he's trying to say to us. So even though it may not be the most pleasant thing, we should look back on previous circumstances and try to make some connection, give the Lord an opportunity to say, this is what I was trying to do. This is the way that I was trying to get your attention. I mean, nobody wants to create a list of top 10 worst spiritual moments last year or top 10 acts of rebellion against God or top 10 moments of God's rebuke and chastisement, but it's as much a part of our life following him as all the blessings that we encounter along the way. So I, I do want to be clear that not everything bad that happens to us is a result of God's judgment, but if we're honest as believers, it could be that a number of things are. A number of the difficulties that we go through may be a result of poor decisions that we've made and how God has had to judge us for choices that were in violation of what he wanted from us. Let me give you some examples of that. It could be that right here tonight in the congregation, there's a teenager that's currently experiencing God's judgment on their lives because they refuse to let go of a relationship their parents have refused for them to have. Could be that there's a college-age person who wouldn't tell anyone, but they've developed a disease or an unexpected pregnancy due to promiscuity. A man who this year, his wife left him because he would not give up his drinking or his gambling or his pornography. God's judging that man for his addiction and his unwillingness to give up that addiction or to receive God's help. There might be a family who struggled financially all year, and they might want to say, yeah, we're just making it through, but God is providing for us, and hold on to those promises of God. But if they're really honest, they know that the reason they're going through financial difficulty is they haven't handled their finances according to wisdom, and God's having to judge them. They're not tithing. They're not giving to missions. They're not being a blessing when God's instructing them to give to others, and God's having to judge their finances. A believer whose mind is so distracted, even tonight, because they are intoxicated by entertainment. Music, movies, violent video games have robbed them of any appreciation for God, for people, for life in general, because they've given their time and attention to that. There could be a man who's lost his job because he didn't have the character to be on time, to work hard, to stay until the job was done. He might try to make an excuse and say it was something else, but honestly, it was a consequence of the kind of worker that he was. Or a wife who's created a miserable home environment because she will not let her husband answer God's call to the mission field. And it could be circumstantial things, you know, like a man who's facing a serious illness that he knows is caused by his smoking habit or his drinking habit or his eating habits. 
But he just says it's too late to change now and just keeps right on going. And it isn't willing to identify. This is the natural judgment and consequence of decisions that he's made. Sometimes it's, it's circumstances you can see and things that happen to us physically. But sometimes God's judgment is upon our hearts. In fact, in Psalm 106.15, it says, God gave them their request but sent leanness unto their soul. So it could be that a person goes through everyday life and they're walking around and people think that their circumstances are fine. Maybe they are affluent. Maybe they do have money. But maybe they're hurting on the inside and the hurting they're experiencing is judgment from God. A parent is worrying over a rebellious and wayward child, but if the parent were honest, it's not, it's not one of those things where that the child just went their own way even though the parent did the best that they could. The child is wayward because of poor parenting choices, and that parent has to live with the hurt and heartache of those poor choices that they made. A young person here who's filled with doubt about even God's existence because they entertain the attacks on God that were presented to them in their public high school. An elderly person who experienced constant anxiety over conflicts in Syria, Iran, North Korea, Israel, because they refuse to trust God with these things. They keep watching the news, keep taking all of it in, and keep getting more worried about it rather than giving it to God. A child caring for an aging parent is plagued by bitterness because the parent is ungrateful and demanding, and the child refuses to deal with the hurt. Could be a believer's racked with guilt because there's unconfessed sin. They just don't want to deal with it. Or somebody who's in the throes of deep depression, not because they have to be or because the Bible doesn't have the answers, but because they refuse to meet with the preacher and, and talk to him about it and get help from spiritual counsel about it. See, I want you to understand God's judgment is, is severe. He has the right to judge those who are his children when they do things that are against what it is that he wants them to do. So think about this for a moment, and, and we're going to move into our text here at this point. Think about how confusing sometimes, how bewildering it can be for us as children of God to look back on the past and look at the circumstances of life and see it as such a mishmash, mixed up bowl of both God's blessing and God's judgment, of, of good experiences and bad experiences, of positive events and negative events. And we can look back and say, God, I just cannot figure you out. I don't understand what you're doing in my life. And I don't want to just act like that that's a, a message or a concept that all of you need to think about. I couldn't even help but think about this for myself, even personally, just to share something personally with you. Just even in the last month, month and a half, uh, five weeks ago, and I mentioned this at the marriage retreat, um, five weeks ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to go on an eight-day trip to Hawaii. I'm in a PhD program at Oklahoma State University, and as part of that program, I'm required to present research at a higher education conference. And the faculty member got us approved to present research at this conference in Hawaii, and Oklahoma State University even provided grants for us, for a portion of that, for us to be able to go on that trip. And I look back and say, wow, what an undeserved gift and blessing from God that God allowed us to get away and to have that time together. But two weeks after we got back, we buried my father, who had lost a seven-month battle with pancreatic cancer. And I could look at just a few-week time frame and say, God, this was so good, and yet this was so hard. What is it that you're doing? I, I don't understand you, God. I, I don't understand the mishmash, the mixed-up bowl of all the promises and blessings and undeserved gifts that he gives to us along the way, but then the heartache and the trial and the problems 
and confusion that we go through. God, I just don't understand what it is that you're doing. Well, listen, we're not unlike the people of God who, who were following him then. And if you were to look at all of the verses prior to verse 23 and Isaiah 28, like I mentioned to you as we prepared to read the text, you look in verses 1 and through 4, Isaiah's talking about woe to the leaders, and, and God's going to bring all the judgment upon the leaders because of the way that they're acting. But then in verses 5 and 6, he presents this soaring promise about the coming Messiah someday and how that God is going to bless his people in a wonderful way. And then he goes in verses 7 through 15 and says, but nobody gets it and, and God's going to have to judge them because he's trying to help them get ready for the Messiah, but they won't get ready for the Messiah. And then he talks again in verse 16 about how, but Messiah is coming and even in spite of them, everything's going to work out okay. And then judgment is still coming according to verses 17 through 20. So God's people then were confused about God's working, just like God's people today can sometimes be confused about God's working as they say, it's judgment one day, it's blessing the next day. I don't understand what God is doing. And if you look at, at verse 21, it gives some specific examples for God's people. It says, for the Lord shall rise up as in Mount Perazim. He shall be wroth as in the valley of Gibeon. And those would be two Old Testament stories that we don't have the time to get into, but where God did really odd things to protect and to help his people. But Isaiah is saying that just like God did really odd, noticeable, strange things to protect his people, now, under his judgment, God's going to step in and do odd and strange things that can't help but get their attention, but this time, it's going to be working against them. But look at what it says. It says, For the Lord shall rise up as in Mount Perazim, he shall be wroth as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his strange work, and bring to pass his act, his strange act. So we can look at what God is doing and say, I have to acknowledge this is not a coincidence. I can see the levers and the pulleys. I know God is doing something, but I don't understand what it is that God is doing. And it's with all of that in mind that Isaiah then presents this parable at the end of this chapter. And Isaiah intended that the moment his audience would read this parable, that they would understand exactly what it was that God was doing. So even though we are like the people of Isaiah's day and that we struggle with, with how God is leading us, the way in which that we're very much not like the people of Isaiah's day is we don't get his agricultural analogy here, right? I mean, as I'm reading it, you're saying, you're, you're, you're saying this is supposed to somehow explain God's working? I'm more confused about God's working than anything. The farmer, the cumin, the fitches, what on earth are, are you talking about? I have no idea what it is that's, that's happening here in this text. Well, take a second to think about it. Look down at verse 23 again. He says, let me get your attention. Give ye ear, hear my voice, hearken, and hear my speech. Doth the plowman plow all day to sow? Doth he open and break the clods of his ground? Here's what Isaiah is saying. Does the farmer go out for a full day's work and take out the plow and plow up the ground, tear it all up? It's, it's smooth ground, but he tears it all up and puts those rows in it and then says, okay, my work's done. Done for farming for the year. Is that all that the farmer does? That, that's his rhetorical question. Look at it again. He says, Doth the plowman plow all day to sow? Doth he open and break the clods of his ground? Is that it? Is the whole job for a farmer done when he plows up the ground? Well, no. Look at what he says in the next verse. When he hath made plain the face thereof, when he's put the furrows into it and, and made it ready, doth he not cast abroad the fitches and scatter the cumin and cast in the principal wheat and the appointed barley and the rye in their place? 
He's saying the, the farmer knows what he's doing. He doesn't just plow up the ground and say, okay, my farming job is done. He plows the ground because he's going to put seed in the ground, and he puts the various kinds of seed in the ground. And then once the crop has come up, then the farmer knows the exact time in which to harvest that crop. And the farmer has all of this understanding of how to be a good farmer. And, and the farmer is not just arbitrarily going out and doing whatever, and it doesn't have any sense about it or any pattern about it. The farmer knows exactly what he's doing. And what he's doing is he's doing whatever it takes in order to get a crop. He looks out there and sees dirt and says, if I just leave this dirt here, there will never be fruit. There will never be a crop that comes from this dirt. So the farmer executes his wisdom, his knowledge, his understanding about how farming works in order to go out there and do the multi-step process that it takes in order to get a crop. You say, okay, well, good for the farmer, right? But look at verse 26. Where does the farmer's wisdom come from? Who is the one that designed this whole process in the first place? Who's the one who designed the ground to be tilled? Who designed the different types of seeds to be planted? Who designed the growing patterns and the uh, rotation of the crops and the ways in which the crops will be harvested? Look at, look at verse 26. For his God doth instruct him to discretion and doth teach him. Look at verse 29. This also cometh forth from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. So Isaiah is saying, now think through this for a second. It may seem to you like I'm just talking about a farmer and how a farmer knows how to approach a flat piece of ground and through his work, he is able to produce a crop from that ground that he's tilled and planted and harvested. The farmer may seem like he's so wise and he's so awesome because he understands how to produce this crop. But listen, Isaiah says, don't you understand that the farmer's wisdom his ability to be able to develop a crop from that ground came from the God who created the ground and the God who created those crops. He's saying, don't you understand that just like the farmer knows what he's doing in order to produce a crop, God knows what he's doing in your life. That just like the farmer has this multi-step process of preparing the ground and the seed for a harvest that he will eventually produce. And it's all because of his understanding and his wisdom from, from his perspective as the farmer to know what needs to be done in order to produce that crop. He says, don't you understand that the farmer knows best because God knows best? And the same God that instructed the farmer on how to produce a physical crop through the tilling of the ground can in the lives of those who follow him do his work in order to produce a crop from their lives. So just as the farmer knows what he's doing when it comes to plowing and planting and harvesting, so according to this parable, God knows what he's doing in our lives when he's plowing and when he's planting and when he's harvesting. Because see, it can come up in our minds to say, I don't understand what it is that God is doing. Well, it could be that God is plowing in your life. He, he's wanting to begin a work and a harvest in your life and understands that the soil of your heart and the soil of your life won't receive the work that he's trying to do in you. So it could be that the work that God is doing right now is, is tilling up your, your ground. He's, he's tilling up your life. He's disrupting your thoughts 
So that rather than just thinking about work or about what you have to do for the day or, or all the things that would otherwise concern your mind, he's invading your life. He's puncturing your soil in order to get your attention and say, hang on a second, I, I'm trying to break up the hardness of your heart. And God can do that through a variety of circumstances and people and difficulties and challenges and problems and whatever he chooses. But listen, God is not arbitrary. God is not clueless. God is not a coincidental God. God is at work in very particular ways in order to plow up the ground in our hearts. But it's important for us to remember that just like in Isaiah's day, somebody might be saying, so is this farmer just plowing all day? Is that all it is? Is he just plowing to plow and he's destroying and breaking up my life and that's all it is that the farmer does? Well, no. The farmer's only plowing long enough for him to be able to plant the seed into the ground. But just like the farmer knows what he's doing in the plowing and God knows what he's doing in bringing difficult circumstances and challenges into our lives, so the farmer also knows the different types of of crops that he's trying to produce. So the farmer knows the plowing, but the farmer also knows the planting. Look at what it says in verse 25. When he hath made plain the face thereof, doth he not cast abroad the fitches? That's one way of planting. If you're going to plant fitches, you cast them abroad. And scatter the cumin, you've got to scatter that. And cast in the principal wheat and the appointed barley and the rye in their place. See the emphasis he's saying? They've each got their own type of soil that they go into. And they've got their own particular place that they get planted. And there's a way that you cast the seed. For some you can cast it. For some you have to put the individual seeds in. And just like the farmer knows what he's doing as he's plowing the ground, the farmer knows what he's doing with each of the individual crops that he's working with. Now, I don't know very much about plowing whatsoever. I can tell you through some difficult experience along the way that that gardening is very personal and individualized i mean i i honestly i i had to deal with a small amount of bitterness i'm serious before the lord we were driving uh let's see deception pass came back on 20 we were just about to get on interstate 5 to head back to bellingham and we did some exploring together and we saw this you pick blueberry farm okay now I understand that it's not the season for blueberries or anything like that, but I'm not sure if there ever is a season for blueberries in Oklahoma, okay? Because I want to grow blueberries. I love blueberries. I would rather plant our own and enjoy them for ourselves than have to go to the store and pay ridiculous prices for blueberries. So we have tried in Oklahoma to plant blueberries in our backyard, and we have killed more bushes than have survived because... <laughs> we're trying to violate God's ultimate plan for farming, I guess. I don't know. I mean, they tell us, so the soil has to be super acidic, but it has to drain really well. None of those things happen in Oklahoma, okay? I mean, it just, the soil doesn't work that way. It's hard clay, so we've added stuff to the soil. We keep putting acidifier in it, and we still keep killing blueberries. They say, oh, you got to put it in the shade because the sun's so hot in Oklahoma, but if you leave it in the shade and you water it all the time, then they mold or whatever. I don't know. We, we've tried multiple times, but obviously the way that you treat blueberries with acidic soil that drains well is not the same as what you do with tomatoes or other plants, each individual one has their own way of being planted if you're going to be able to receive a crop. Think about that. The God who designed the world that way has planted each and every one of you in places and circumstances in life that is not one whit a coincidence. Now, I may be a terrible gardener, but God is a fantastic farmer. 
And the soil that he's placed you in and the fruit he's expecting of you is exactly what he tailor-made and designed you to be. The fact that you're working the job that you're working, the fact that he placed you in this church, that he surrounded you with the family that he gave you, God is so individual, so personal, so specific that you can be guaranteed where you're planted right now, he has you there. And he has a purpose for you being there because the farmer knows what he's doing in the planting. Well, listen, just like the farmer knows what he's doing in the plowing and in the planting, the farmer knows what he's doing in the harvesting. This is, this is fascinating to me. Look, look at verse 27 here. For the fitches are not threshed with a threshing instrument, neither is a cartwheel turned about upon the cumin, but the fitches are beaten with, out with a staff and the cumin with a rod. Bread corn is bruised because he will not ever be threshing it, nor break it with the wheel of his cart, nor bruise it with his horsemen. Now, again, we don't have to dig into all the particulars, just like I did in the previous. It's not like you need a, a previous century explanation about fitches and cumin. You got the idea, right? That when it comes time for the harvest, that there are some types of crops that if you go and take the cart out there, that you're going to destroy the very crop that you were trying to harvest. So some of them you got to go out there and you're going to beat it with a rod, and whatever it is that you're trying to get is going to fall off the plant and you pick it up, and that's the way that you're going to get it. There's going to be other types of plants where you have to go out there and individually pick it. Even in our modern society, where they have all kinds of really cool devices, there are still lots of crops that have to be harvested by an individual person with individual fingers going out there and plucking them off. But there are other types where it would seem really inefficient to do it that way, and instead they can take all kinds of big machinery and harvest it by the acre, like what we do in Oklahoma with, with wheat. It's beautiful, beautiful wheat fields. So the farmer knows what he's doing in the harvesting, and he knows how much pressure needs to be applied, how much, listen, this is being true to the text, how much we have to be beat in order for us to let go of the harvest he's trying to do in us. Because it's in us to be tough, and it's in us to not want to let God do his work in us, but he knows just exactly how much force he has to use to get out of us what it is that he's wanting out of us and to produce the change in us that he's trying to produce in us. My junior year at Heartland Baptist Bible College, I went there myself as a student. My junior year at Heartland, I made a series of poor choices as a student. I was a leader. I had a privilege to be an RA at the time, and I traveled on one of the music groups, and I made a series of poor decisions. And... I was asked and, and I was demoted, removed from one of my responsibilities that I had there at the college. And at the time, I really want you to listen to this. At the time, in my rebellious heart and spirit, I thought that what I had done was this big, but that my judgment was this big. But now I look back and recognize that, yes, while the actions that I did may have looked like this, the God who saw my heart knew that my heart was this wicked. So the consequences that I received was not one bit too hard. It was exactly what God knew that I needed, and he used my authorities to execute the consequences upon my life exactly as I needed them. I may have wanted to resent it. I may have wanted to be frustrated about it. I may have wanted to say, hey, I only did this much. Why, why is it that you would give me this kind of judgment? It's because the farmer above the authorities knew exactly where my heart was and told my authorities this is the punishment that he needs. And I can tell you, though I felt like at that point, my life is over. I've been beaten too hard. I'll never recover from this. Why? I look at my life now and I, I recognize and acknowledge I would not be able to be doing what I'm doing 
if God had not humbled me. Even publicly, through having made those poor decisions and having suffered the consequences of it. And now, think about this, now getting to be a, a leader at the college myself, I sit across from students and have to execute judgment against them for the things that they do. And think about the internal lessons that God taught me as I was the person sitting on this side of the dean table, now that I'm the one sitting on this side of the dean table. And all the way back then, in those years ago, when I was struggling with it, and I'm thinking, God, what are you doing? This is way too hard. The whole time God saw the harvest that he had in store later on down the line, he saw how wicked my heart was, and yet in his patience and his kindness, he said, he knew what he wanted to do with my life someday and knew that it was going to take those kinds of consequences to get my attention, to change my heart, to humble me because he wanted to use me. And I have no idea what consequences you may be going through. It could be that you're up to your eyeballs in debt because of poor decisions and God's showing you, I'm not going to fix this thing for you. The lessons he's going to teach you through getting yourself out of that is the very lessons he wants you to learn because of things he wants to do with your finances in the days to come. It could be that you just want God to zap your husband and fix him for you, but it could be that God is going to use his struggles and his immaturities to grow you as a person so that then God grows him and the two of you can serve God together because you've both grown side by side. There's all kinds of ways that God can be working in your life and you can be guaranteed because he is a faithful, kind farmer who knows how to produce his harvest that he will not press you, he will not beat you, he will not put you through circumstances even just one little bit more than what he knows that you need. He's faithful in his plowing, he's faithful in his planting, and he's faithful in his, in his harvesting. Just like the farmer knows best, God knows best what he's doing. Now, this is what we got to finish with, okay? If we understand that this is what God is like, how should we respond to that? Because that's actually what all of Isaiah 28 is about. Is Isaiah trying to help these people understand the nature of God and respond to God's working? Because here's what can happen. If we don't pay attention to the way that God works in our lives, then we can just continue to go through life and think that everything we face is a coincidence, and never realize, never gain the wisdom to look at life and say, this is what God was trying to do. This is what God is trying to teach me. If we don't take the time to look and try to discern what God is doing and respond to it appropriately, we're going to miss all of what it was that God was trying to do in our lives and make him take just that much longer to do the work he's been trying to do all along. Look at verse 12. How should we respond to the fact that the farmer knows best? Look at verse 12. To whom he said, talking about his people, to whom he said, this is the rest wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. God was trying to work on his people, and basically like a, a loving farmer, like a loving heavenly father, he was saying, I'm trying to get your attention here. Would you just be still and rest in my work for a moment? Would you let me work on you? Would you let me help you? When we realize that the farmer knows best, our first response should be to trust him and rest in him, to acknowledge he knows what he's doing with my life better than I know, and if all these circumstances are out of my control anyway, I can spend all my time trying to figure it out. I can spend my time trying to thwart what God is doing, and everything about my heart and everything about my life can be not resting and not resting, and I've got to fix that, and God messed this up, and I've got to take care of this problem, when our first response should be to just simply stop for a moment and rest 
and trust God and say, God, I'm going to be still and give you the opportunity to show me what it is that you're trying to do. We as believers can run around so frantic trying to avoid what God is trying to do in our lives rather than simply rest in it and trust in what it is that he's trying to do. Look, look, at, the, look at verse 22. Now therefore, in light of this message of woe, verse 22, now therefore be ye not mockers, lest your bands be made strong. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a consumption even determined upon the whole earth. Isaiah says, don't resist the Lord. Don't rebel against the Lord. Whatever it is that he's telling you, once you figure out what it is that God's trying to tell you to do, submit to him. The harder you try to resist what God is doing, the more that he's going to have to restrain you and make your band stronger and stronger and stronger. Rather than fight him and remain lacking in rest and lacking in peace, he says, trust God, rest and be still. And whatever it is that he says to you, submit to it. Because God has the power and the ability to always be one step stronger than what you are. You may try to resist even harder, but God can make your bands even stronger. And I can't help but think about even just my own relationship as a father with my children. And I know those of you that have been parents even longer than I have, you understand what I'm talking about, that you only want what's best for your children. There's times you just wish you could say, just be still and know that I'm trying to do what's best for you and just learn the lessons that I'm trying to teach you, submit to them, and you wouldn't have to be facing the same discipline over and over and over and over again. And I can see that in my children and miss it in myself. That a loving heavenly father, a farmer, is working very diligently in my life, and yet I can make the same mistakes over and over again as he has to tighten my bands more and more and more to try to confine me to what it is that he's trying to do in my life. But then look at the last verse of the chapter. The skill of the farmer, look at verse 29, it also cometh, this also cometh forth from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. So we should respond to the farmer knowing best by resting and trusting in him, by submitting to whatever it is that he's trying to do in our lives, and then to simply praise him, to say, I could have never orchestrated the infinite, incredible coincidences, circumstances that God has accomplished in my life to bring me to this point. And though I look back and I see judgment, and though I look back and I see heartache, and though I look back and I see blessings, I see all of these things, and I can't necessarily make sense of it all, I stand right here and say, only God could have done what he's done in my life. And he's worthy of praise because as I look back on my life, I see all these things I thought were coincidences. I thought were, were, were just happenstance. But the whole time God was plowing, God was planting, and God was harvesting. He was doing a work in my life so that he could get from me what it was that he was trying to get from me. I know most of you have probably heard of Corey Tin Boom. Uh, she wrote a book called The Hiding Place. Her family... Uh, as, a, as a family, they were Dutch Christians who uh, created a room in their house where that Jews would be able to flee from the oncoming Nazi holocaust and in hiding in that place would then have a series of other places that they could go in order to escape the Nazi concentration camps. History tells us that they hid and fed and transported 800 or more Jews and saved their lives. But on February 28, 1944, the family was betrayed 
and Corey and several of her relatives were arrested. The family members were separated and transferred to concentration camps. Corey was allowed to stay with her sister, Betsy. But listen to this. Corey's father, Corey's sister and brother, and one of her nieces were all executed. Corey was released in December of 1944 by a clerical error. It was an error. It was a, cleric, it was a clerical error that she was released one week before all female prisoners her age were killed. And as I mentioned to you, she went on to write a book called The Hiding Place, but I also want you to hear this poem that she wrote. And after I read this, I'm going to pray with you. The poem is entitled, Life is But a Weaving. So think about Corrie ten Boom and all of what God allowed her to go through, and then I want you to listen to what she said here. She said, My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I, in foolish pride, forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. Listen to this. God gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Respond to God as the farmer who knows best by trusting him, submitting to him, and praising him for what he does. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I am confident that you as the infinite God are at work in each and every individual life who is represented here tonight, each family that's represented here. And God, we, in our finite understanding, can be so arbitrary and so confused and lack understanding about what you're doing. But Lord, this text reminds us that that you're not confused and you're not without understanding and the things that you allow to happen in our lives are with a purpose. And it may not be that something that you're, you've brought into our lives is a, is a direct judgment from you. It could be that pressing, that working that you're doing just simply to make us more beautiful, more Christ-like, more wonderful people. And yet sometimes it could be that we're facing judgment as a result of our own decisions and you're too faithful and you're too good and you have purposes too great to just let us go on as we are. So you insistently plow us and plant us and harvest us one day at a time, one step at a time, one circumstance at a time. Thank you, Lord, for that. And Lord, I just want to ask that you would help those here who you have spoken to them about you and about your nature and whatever it is that you've been doing in their lives, that they would respond to you, that they wouldn't resist you, that they wouldn't ignore what it is that you're trying to say to them through their life circumstances, but that, Lord, they would respond in faith and in submission and in praise, acknowledging you for the great God that you are. And, Lord, we just thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you choose to work with us and that you have a purpose for us. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you to